Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. Today is Wednesday the 13th of October and with me for the first time in a long time, Katrina Blowers. How the bloody hell are you? So good to hear your gorgeous chirpy voice. Um, I'm fabulous. (laughs) Uh, We have got a really special treat on The Briefing today. Tom Tilly and I sat down with none other than Malcolm Turnbull. Now we were told we would only have a little bit of time with him, maybe 10 minutes or so, but 30 Five minutes later and counting, he was still talking to us. He was really in the mood for a chat. He talked to us all about his vision for an emissions-free Australia. If Scott Morrison decides not to show up at Glasgow, he will be making a very big statement, perhaps even more powerful than if he turned up. If he turns up, he'll be one of 100, 150 world leaders who'll be there and his contribution will no doubt be of consequence. But if he doesn't turn up, I mean, that's incredible. So that's the former PM, Jan. He really doesn't pull any punches. He tells us exactly what he thinks of all the people he used to work with and also the rise of the right-wing press. So such a good chat. We've broken it up into two instalments. The first instalment will be happening this morning. Oh, such is you know when Malcolm Turnbull's in a good mood, he can he can have a yarn, <laughs> can't he? That we've had to we've had to put it over two episodes. Well, I like that. Let's hit the headlines. Federal Cabinet will today meet to debate a plan to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 amid growing speculation. The Prime Minister will be attending that Glasgow Climate Summit later this month. Yeah, that is the big question. Will he, won't he, will he, won't he? Well, the PM and his Liberal Ministers say that they are working to reassure their National Party colleagues um, that the plan that they've got to reduce emissions is going to benefit regional communities, particularly in Queensland. Now, Queensland Nationals MP David Littleproud says that his party hasn't seen a comprehensive plan for how Australia would do that just yet uh, and that the devil is really in the details here. I think it's more important that we give a commitment that um, has veracity, uh, that has standing uh, and has currency. News Corp is reporting the PM's plan will include investment in regional clean hydrogen production and also incentives to encourage people to switch to electric vehicles. I think they just need to make those much cheaper for everyone, don't you, Jan? I'd get one if they were. Today's debate in Cabinet comes after government sources were yesterday telling media outlets Scott Morrison was increasingly likely to attend next month's Glasgow Climate Conference. Do you reckon he's just going to leave everyone guessing right up until the, the last moment? Well, it seems so. I mean, the conference is set to kick off on October the 31st. Um, It's going to run for two weeks. I don't know if it's a good look to be doing that because most of the uh, other sort of world leaders, at least in, you know, developed nations, have already committed to attending Glasgow. So the fact that our Prime Minister is umming and ahhing is already not a really great look. And, you know, Mm. we heard Malcolm Turnbull at the top of the show say that his presence might not be noticed because he's going to be one of a hundred. His absence is what's really going to be noticed if he yeah. doesn't go. And the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet says that he will meet his ministers this week to decide whether to ease COVID restrictions again on Monday if the state reaches 80% vaccine coverage. The success of our vaccination rate has been absolutely superb. And we hit 80%. We've always said it'll be the Monday following. We will have this discussion with our team on Thursday and we'll make a decision to be announced on Friday. So that's Dominic Perrottet 
Day speaking to the ABC there. 75% of people 16 and over in New South Wales are fully vaccinated and that rate of uptake means the figure could hit 80% by the end of this week. Yeah, I mean, New South Wales is really, it's it's been leading the charge on vaccinations in Australia for sure. We've been told that at 80%, uh, if you're fully vaccinated, you won't have to wear a mask in the workplace. Um, the cap on indoor and outdoor gatherings will increase and also there might be um, regional travel allowed. Now, these restrictions were supposed to ease on the 25th. So they may very well ease, well, the proposal at least, this is what Don Perrottet is going to be discussing with his ministers, they may ease as early as next week. Um, New South Wales is doing quite well, I don't really want to say well because it does still have 360 COVID yeah. cases a day. And compared to the good state of Queensland, where you are, that's quite uh, a lot. But here's the thing, Jan, like we are really falling behind with our vaccination rate. We've got something like 52% of the population double jabbed, right. 70% now have received their first. But there's still so many regions in Queensland with either complacency because we have no cases or hesitancy that they predict those particular regions won't be double jabbed until sometime in 2022, which doesn't bode well for the border reopening. Opening. So we just don't know how that's going to fare. We've got um, vaccine hubs popping up in Bunnings stores this weekend because the government's really pushing mm. hard for people to get a vaccine in their arms. We had a very strong incentive here in New South Wales to get vaccinated, which was we want a roadmap out of lockdown. Yeah. Um, and because you guys are not in lockdown, I guess the incentive is not that strong. However, it is the best time to do it because it means that should there be an outbreak of Delta, and we know that Delta is much harder to control, you'll be fully vaccinated. Come on, Anastasia. Federal Labor leader Anthony Albanese is refusing to sack an MP caught up in political branch stacking in the Victorian arm of the party. It's not appropriate to preempt uh, their findings and those processes. That's uh, very clear when you have uh, legal matters taking place. Labor member Anthony Byrne on Monday admitted that he and other members of Victorian Labor had spent thousands of dollars to pay for other people to join the party. So if you're wondering what branch stacking actually is, it refers to when a member of a party signs up new members to influence how the party votes and their policies. It's actually not illegal, but it is against Labor's own rules. And when giving evidence to Victoria's anti-corruption body, Mr Burns said the practice was actually out of control in Victoria. And some space news, an Australian-made rover could be heading to the moon within five years, we're told. Um, this is sort of part of a much bigger plan. I know, I sounded a bit sceptical there, didn't I? We're told, <laughs> we're not sure, might not happen. No, I love space, I'm supporting this cat. You know, there's a, the there's a big range plan. of emotions. <laughs> yeah, we've gone the full gamut, haven't we? I mean, there is, there is a massive plan by the US to get people back to the moon by the end of the decade. That's the plan and, and we're on board apparently. This is a huge day for Australia and our space industry. We were there at the Parkes telescope to transmit when man first landed on the moon and just over half a century later we'll have a rover at the other end of that telescope. That's the Science and Technology Minister Melissa Price there. So the federal government is going to uh, cough up 
$50 million to businesses to help deliver and develop this rover, which would join the American mission and they're going to be collecting lunar soil and rock samples for research. Yeah, they have a plan um, to build a sort of a permanent post, I guess, on the moon's South Pole so that there can be an ongoing human presence there. I mean, it's been a long time since there were men and certainly since there were women on the moon. I wouldn't want to be living on the moon, but I'm guessing there must be people who would love to do that. Um, The US is the only country to send people to the moon, but its astronauts only spent 16 days there. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Jan, it's been ages. They haven't been back in almost 50 years. Yeah. And while we're talking Australian space, I mean, we did open a space agency in Adelaide last year. So so there's that. But also a shout out to one Dr. Abigail Allwood. She is the first Australian and also the first woman scientific lead on a Mars mission. Oh, so, um, you amazing. know, she's flying the Aussie flag there. We've, um, we've put our stamp on Mars and now we're going to do it on the moon. <laughs> and to sport news, if you're a soccer fan, some, some bad news. The Socceroos have had their record 11-match winning streak brought to an end by Japan overnight. Yeah, Japan have really turned out to be Australia's nemesis in soccer. Uh, the Socceroos have actually lost all but one of their last 11 games against the Samurai Blue and an own goal in the 85th minute meant Japan came out on top 2-1 in this match outside Tokyo. Oh, own goal. What a terrible way oh, to no. end these headlines. But we will have to do it nonetheless. All right, I'm jumping out. Kat, your chat with Tom and Malcolm Turnbull coming up next. Katrina Blouse, it feels like there's a lot going on in the climate change space right now. Which is great, isn't it, that we're actually having these conversations and that they're getting onto the front pages of newspapers in the News Corp stable even. Yeah, well, this week might mark a big turning point in the climate change debate because um, the Murdoch Papers, so it's the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, it's the Herald Sun in Melbourne, it's the Courier Mail in Brisbane, it's the Adelaide Advertiser, Huge papers, very important, very influential. They've done this massive campaign. This was on Monday. If you saw the front pages, it was all about moving towards net zero and building a big, strong, renewable industry here in Australia. And at the same time, it also appears that Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, might be about to finally move beyond, preferably moving to net zero, to actually committing to it as a goal. Yeah, and this all comes about as we move closer to this big UN climate summit in Glasgow. It's going to start right at the end of this month. It's hosted by the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, alongside the US President, Joe Biden, who side by side are advocating for much stronger action on climate change than their predecessors. Now, it looks like Scott Morrison won't be going to the summit, but a former Prime Minister will. Yeah, so Malcolm Turnbull has a really juicy new role. He is the chairman of Twiggy Forest GH2. So Andrew Twiggy Forest is one of Australia's richest men. And I found it fascinating that he's paired up with a former PM. What an interesting team, Tom. Yeah, so GH2 stands for the Green Hydrogen Organisation, basically advocating for the building of green hydrogen energy plants. And Twiggy Forest just announced one with Anna. Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland over the weekend, a mm-hmm. billion dollars, potentially hundreds of jobs. 
So they're the kind of projects they want to introduce. So you've got, yeah, Twiggy Forrest, an enormously wealthy billionaire, teaming up with a former prime minister. They're going to jump on Twiggy's private jet and go yeah. to Glasgow <laughs> and upstage Scott Morrison. Um, so we've got Malcolm Turnbull on the briefing. He's agreed to make some time for us. We're going to ask him all about that new job, what he'll actually be doing in Glasgow, how he feels about upstaging Scott Morrison, what he thinks of Morrison's moves in the climate space and the big switch by the Murdoch Papers. Okay, let's get into part one of this chat. Malcolm Turnbull, thank you so much for joining us. First up, tell us all about your new job as chairman of the Green Hydrogen Fund. Why'd you take this on and what's it all about? Well, Andrew Forrest is determined to accelerate the decarbonisation of the global economy. He knows that we've got to get to net zero as quickly as possible if we want to save our planet from catastrophic global warming. So he's going to decarbonise Fortescue Metals Group, his huge iron ore mining company, and he's established a new company, Fortescue Future Industries, and I'm the chairman of the Australian FFI, to become the largest producer of green hydrogen. Tell us what green hydrogen actually is, how it works, and why you and Twiggy have so much faith that it'll play such a big part in a low-carbon energy mix. Well, hydrogen is a vitally important fuel. I mean, it is the most common element in the universe, of course. Uh, But when hydrogen is burnt, using that term broadly, Mm. uh, the emissions are water, H2O, steam. Mm -hmm. So it is a zero-emission fuel. However, how you make the hydrogen is critically important. Most of the hydrogen today is made from fossil fuels, from uh, gas and coal. Green hydrogen, however, is when you use renewable electricity, you know, from wind and solar and hydro, to split the hydrogen away from the oxygen in water. So you're electrolyzing water. And then, of course, when you put that hydrogen into a hydrogen fuel cell, you effectively reverse the process, creating a lot of energy as you'd go, and the emission is water, steam or liquid water. Right, so you have to use some energy to create more energy through green hydrogen. To make hydrogen uh, renewably, sustainably, you do need a lot of electricity, and obviously it's got to be cheap and it's got to be renewable. So large-scale wind, solar, hydro, where it's sustainable, are critical to doing that. And Andrew Forrest is determined that FFI will become the world leader in that regard, and I have great confidence in Andrew. I mean, he, he brings to this challenge some remarkable qualities. He's obviously incredibly passionate. He's got huge commitment. He has got enormous financial resources, But what he has that many others do not have is that he leads a company which he has at its very heart construction, engineering, building things. Let's talk about that deal in Gladstone that was announced over the weekend. I mean, the Queensland Premier said it was as big a deal as the Olympic (laughs) announcement. Uh, It sort of strikes me as the kind of project that could even break the deadlock on that coal climate jobs impasse, that if you can create those well-paid jobs in the kind of communities that have relied on coal jobs for their economic backbone, then you can move forward. So explain to us just what kind of a big deal it is and, and how you go about winning hearts and minds in those areas? Well, 
ultimately the transition to zero emissions is going to create more jobs in regions than there are at the moment. The proposition that a decarbonised economy is going to result in fewer jobs in regional Australia has always been a lie. Uh, and it's you know obviously pushed by people with a political agenda to do so. The reality is, if you're talking about whether it is plants to make build electrolysers or wind farms or solar farms or pumped hydro, they're not going to be on a street corner in in Newtown or um, <laughs> Manly. You know they're going to be in regional Australia, and these are phenomenal opportunities because, of course, they don't bring with them the environmental negatives, both global in the sense of CO2 and methane emissions, or local in the sense of dust and air pollution and landscape devastation that uh, coal mining does. This announcement strikes me as a bit of a a real step forward where we're talking about a $1 billion project that could employ as many or more people than the Adani coal mine. Coal is time stamped, date stamped. The world has to stop burning coal. You know, that is clear. I mean, literally only the really extreme fringe climate change denialists deny that anymore, and they're sort of out there with the anti-vaxxers. It's all very well to say we've got a target for net zero by 2050, for example, but unless you've got a plan to get there, it's not very credible. Well, what's your, th- what's so- your plan for green hydrogen? What percentage of the energy mix do you think it could be and by when? Well, the answer is it could be enormous. It could be a very large part of it. Like a quarter or a half? or I think more like a quarter than a half. If you look at steelmaking, that's currently about 8% of the world's emissions are by itself. Now, you can use hydrogen in a blast furnace to take the oxygen out of iron ore. I mean, what a blast furnace does is you're combusting iron ore and coke, and the iron ore is ferrous oxide, what happens is that the oxygen is attracted to the carbon and obviously goes up the chimney as CO2, which is bad. And so you, that's how you get to iron as opposed to iron ore. So hydrogen can replace carbon in the, or at least coal anyway, in the iron making and steel making process. The bottom line is it's a big part of the mix. How much of the mix it is going to be, time will tell. But the the need to commercialise it, to reduce its cost dramatically, you know, to get down to $2 a kilo or, or less is vital. And, you know, that is what the mission of FFI is all about. So it's your role as chairman of the GH2 that will be taking you to the Glasgow Climate Summit in a couple of yeah, weeks' time. Yeah, well, well, GH2 is the Global Green Hydrogen Organisation. I'm chairman of, Andrew is, is the founder of it, one of the founders of it. It is designed to be a global organisation with many members and supporters whose mission it is to advocate for green hydrogen as opposed to other forms of hydrogen. And in particular, what we are concerned about is what is basically a con, which is so-called blue hydrogen. The fossil fuel sector has said, we will have blue hydrogen And blue hydrogen, they contend, is where you still keep using fossil fuels to make hydrogen, but you take the CO2 and you stick it under the ground. But apart from a few niche applications, it has simply not proved economic or feasible 
around the world. Mm. Basically, it's been used by the fossil fuel sector as a delaying tactic. Right, so you're right, going now, to make this argument in, in Glasgow, you're also going to yeah, make a similar yeah, we're, point we're, about... we're making this argument everywhere. And so the argument is that if governments want to support hydrogen, they should support green hydrogen. If corporations want to move to hydrogen, they should move to green hydrogen. Okay. Because anything else is, frankly, a distraction. Obviously, by going to Glasgow to represent GH2 and make this argument, um, as a former Prime Minister, your presence is clearly going to highlight the absence of the current Prime Minister. How do you feel about that? Look, I mean, history is made by those who turn up. You know, if Scott Morrison decides not to show up at Glasgow, he will be making a very big statement, perhaps even more powerful than if he turned up. If he turns up, he'll be one of 100, 150 world leaders who'll be there and his you know, contribution will no doubt be uh, of consequence. But if he doesn't turn up, I mean, that's incredible. The leader of the world's 12th largest economy... But, you Mr know. Turnbull, is his policy stance perhaps more important, you know, actually doing something rather than whether or not he goes to a meeting? Yeah, because potentially in the next few weeks he might announce that we are actually committing to net zero. He seems, you know, he's been saying preferably all year and he seems to have been working on a, on a plan and they, that may come to fruition just as the Murdoch papers get on board as well. What, what happens then if he, if he announces a plan for net zero and a commitment in Australia but <coughs> doesn't turn up? Is that still quite a good outcome, an even better outcome than turning up with nothing? It's better than turning up, doing nothing and turning up with nothing to say. But of course, you're right. I mean, the important thing is getting the policy right. At the moment, we have no policy, no strategy to cut emissions of any credibility. Uh, There's a complete absence of policy or leadership in terms of emissions reduction at the federal level. It's been an embarrassment for years and you all Mm. understand the reasons for that, it's the you know toxic combination of vested interests in the fossil fuel sector, the right-wing press, mostly Murdoch, and of course uh, right-wing populist politics in the Liberal and National parties. And I mean, it's been ever since Abbott determined to uh, blow up Rudd's uh, emissions trading scheme, you know, more than a decade ago. That's that that has just poisoned Australian politics and climate politics in particular. This week, the News Corp tabloid papers across the country have launched a huge front page campaign championing net zero and Australia's potential as a renewable energy superpower, something you've been pushing for for a long time. Quite remarkable, given how much they've slammed you and the previous Labor governments taking that same line for over 10 years now. Why do you reckon the Murdoch papers are doing this? Well, I think it's it's commercial, I assume. They recognise that the public want action, that they're out of step with the public and that their advertisers are demanding it. So I think it's just a commercial switch. Murdoch has been the largest, loudest, most influential voice in the English-speaking world opposing action to cut emissions. I mean, he has a shocking legacy. We've seen what on the front page of the tabloids in Australia, it's not really reflected in the Australian, but more importantly, it's certainly not reflected in Fox News in the United States which has done enormous damage to both to the climate and to American democracy. It definitely cuts Morrison a lot of slack. Mm. It basically means if he can, you know, wrangle some sort of deal with the nationals and the climate deniers in his own party, he won't get belted around the years by the News Corp tabloids. They are a hugely influential, generally 
destructive element in Australian politics and they've played an enormous role in in holding us back as they have done in the United States. It's incredible. I, I can't imagine um, a worse legacy to leave than that. So that was Malcolm Turnbull in part one, really giving him free reign to really go for it, Katrina. <laughs> he was really up for a chat, wasn't he? Um, he is, yeah. Found it fascinating in particular his comments on the media and the fact that he feels that Scott Morrison's government is the least accountable in his lifetime. Really fascinating stuff. Yeah, so the conversation went so deep with Malcolm Turnbull that we got more than enough for two episodes. So in part two tomorrow, we'll ask him more about the politics of climate change and challenge him a little bit, actually, that for all Malcolm Turnbull's statements, political will, ambition on climate policy, looks like Scott Morrison might actually be the one that gets the party room to a more ambitious position. And you also ask him about his love of water sports and whether he still gets out there like a, a Nutrigrain man on Sydney Harbour on the weekends. <laughs> yep. Loves his kayaking. Um, a whole lot more to come in part two of our interview with Malcolm Turnbull on tomorrow's episode of The Briefing. Listener. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.